0: Hi everybody, thanks so much for coming. I'm Laura Odotta with the Cato Institute. And today we're gonna be talking about Libya and war powers and war powers more broadly as Congress issues. Um, One of the things I wanted to point out, we have two handouts outside. One is a recently published paper by Cato by one of our speakers, John Samples. Congress surrenders the war powers, Libya, the UN, and the Constitution. If for some reason you don't get a copy, we're happy to get one for you or any other Cato materials as well. Our first speaker today is Congressman Chris Gibson, who represents New York's 20th District. He also serves in the House Agriculture and Armed Services Committees, as well as the Republican Policy Committee. Over the course of his 24-year Army career, he rose to the rank of Colonel and was deployed seven times, including four combat tours to Iraq. He previously taught American politics at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He's also the author of Securing the State, a book on national security decision-making published in 2008. Following him will be John Samples, who directs Cato's Center for Representative Government. This study is Campaign Finance Regulation, Delegation of Legislative Authority, and the Political Culture of Limited Government. John is also an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University and the author of, this is my favorite part of being up here, The Struggle to Limit Government, and we're happy to have copies of this for you as well, if you'd like it. John has been featured in publications like USA Today, The New York Times, and Los Angeles Times, and has also appeared on NPR, Fox News, and MSNBC. And with that, I will turn it over to Congressman Gibson.
1: Laura, thanks very much. And also, uh, I also want to reach out and thanks thank uh, Chris uh, for his leadership on this and and for really, uh, being involved in these discussions as we prepared for this panel today and other matters uh, going forward with regard to national security reform. Uh, and, uh, of course, uh, I have the great uh, pleasure and honor to be with John today, too, uh, a, a renowned uh, expert uh, in in this field and, and beyond. So, you know, as was alluded to moments ago, uh, you know, this is a, a, a topic that is uh, – is very personal for me, uh, having uh, led men and women in combat, including uh, losing some of our uh, finest of this generation. And so I, I, there are very few issues and decisions that rise up to this level. Uh, the decision of whether or not a republic... Uh, commits its men and women to uh, to combat and in addition to the experiences as a commander uh, and as a soldier I will tell you that this was also an area that I studied when I was in graduate school I was mentioned I taught at the United States Military Academy at West Point Uh, taught uh, multiple courses there uh, but among those were a uh, was a course on American presidency and we looked at this issue this specific issue in that course with the cadets and uh, for that course uh, i used two of the uh the leading books that address war powers uh resolution but but the larger issue on the use of force Uh, Dr. Fisher and Dr. Turner and they were on opposite ends of the of the spectrum they're a very colorful and interesting uh, debate if you're ever interested in or having trouble sleeping one night but nevertheless uh, what I really wanted to do is just uh, give you some uh, opening remarks as to why this is a passionate issue for me certainly uh, I'm involved in uh, activities to help grow our economy uh, so that we can get Americans back to work, we can strengthen the jobs we have and raise the quality of, and standard of living of all, and the deficit is a major concern to me. But the third goal is protecting our cherished way of life, protecting our cherished way of life from threats from abroad, but also from inadvertent uh, encroachment on our civil liberties here at home. So uh, this is not tangential. Uh, this is uh, in point for what uh, our office is trying to accomplish in the Congress. So let's talk about it. Uh, I mean, the, uh, the title uh, of today, uh, we hear Beyond Libya or in relation to Libya, but let me say that, and I know that you probably have self-selection bias if you're here, uh, you probably know that this issue is much uh, beyond Libya and certainly much before uh, Libya and and continues to be a major issue now uh, and you know it, it's instructive to go back to the founding and to see how uh, our leading statesmen at the time struggled with this issue they really did on the use of force uh, I think it's fair to say that we're all products of our own experience I'm no different they they were no different and when you real when you read and contemplate the bill of rights you can see what a searing experience it was uh circa 1760s, 1770s Uh, some americans look now on the third amendment and say how the heck did that get in there you can't quarter troops in our home seems like a non sequitur oh no that was right up close uh and front and center and personal uh and so was this issue on the decision on using force Uh, Interesting discussion in Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention from May uh, to September of 1787. And then in the Federalist Papers, you see this time and again. The founders, quite frankly, viscerally uh, would love to have hamstrung so that we didn't have a situation where where the new president would be like the king, King George. So much of the Bill of Rights, a reaction to how King George treated us. But uh, cooler heads uh, prevailed there and what they ended up doing is trying to strike a balance. Trying to strike a balance between ensuring we didn't have an executive who exercised fiat but also ensuring that and when they decided on a singular executive, that that executive would be able to defend us. And so like so many other aspects of the Constitution, you see separate institutions, this is Newstat uh, for the political scientists, the junkies out there, but separate institutions sharing powers. Um, and if you wanted some, uh, some more literature to, to see this tension, I would recommend you look at Federalist Papers 69 and 70. Uh, because this is where you get it. In 69, you see, um, you see Hamilton, and it's, I think it's important that it's Hamilton uh, because he was more the big government guy of the three that was writing the Federalist Papers, but he's making the case for why we would be able to have a balance in the new Constitution. He talks about comparing the, 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 the new office, which will be the presidency, in relation to the governor of New York and the king of England. And he goes on saying that, look, uh, this is going to be different. Uh, I I know that you're concerned that we're making the president the commander-in-chief, but you should think of the commander-in-chief, and this is directly from 69, as you would a first general or a first admiral commanding our forces, because the people's representatives would be the one who would vote on declarations of war. So you see that in 69, it comes. it's followed by 70, where you get energy in the executive, so you do see the tension in the two Federalist Papers. But I think it's important to note that our Constitution set up our separate institutions to share power. Well, then what was it like in that first generation when the leaders, the framers, actually had to live what it is... Uh, that they wrote and I I think it's an important distinction or moment to look at uh, John Adams and then look at Thomas Jefferson our second and third presidents because they were politically uh, very much uh, had opposing philosophies um, but yet they took the same actions when it relates to this central question Uh, you had a situation where our sailors were impressed on the seas in the 1790s, Adams takes some actions in relation to his role as commander-in-chief, but then he comes to the Congress and says, I need you to declare war if you want me to do more. The Congress doesn't declare war, but they do tell him to act as if a state of war existed. I bring that up because that's an important moment in our history. Those are our founders, and you notice that they did not declare war, but they said act as if. Uh, a state of war existed, because occasionally in the parlance today, you'll hear folks who'll say that only a declaration of war. But that's not not what happened uh, in the founding period. So it's important to note that there's both the declaration of war, there's the authorization to use force, and then there's that third category that the founders struggled with is an emergency. How do we defend ourselves? But that's Adams. Jefferson, it's the same thing. In 1802, he's dealing with pirates, uh, and then he says, look, if you want me to deal with this in Tripoli, nowadays Libya, come full circle in some respects, he says, uh, you know, you're going to have to give me authorization. And in both cases, the Congress comes forward with with authorization. So I I think that that's important and instructive for, for this dialogue here today. Now, beyond that, there's actually only been five times... Uh, in our country's history where we've declared war. Uh, Now, within those five times, there have been 11 declarations because some of the conflicts had multiple declarations of war contained uh, therein. But um, it is my read of history, and it'll be interesting to see where John is on this, but what has happened in the 200 years plus is we have seen us move away from that founding principle of separate institutions sharing power on this solemn decision on the use of force and in ever more consolidating that decision in the executive and it, it has been largely I would argue because of the advent of the nuclear age. But that has been more of a crutch than anything else uh, for empowering an executive. This is only one symptom of a larger, what some have described as a, an ever-imperial uh, presidency. But it, it, I, I believe that this should be a non nonpartisan issue. This is really an institutional question, and, and deeper than that, it is really one of what kind of a republic? are we gonna be? So as part of my agenda for renewing and reforming our republic, I think we have to take on this question. Uh, And that's why I have introduced the War Powers Reform Act. It's HR 1609, and it it is intended to address what have been uh, the, really the lacking, the failing of the War Powers uh, Resolution that was passed uh, over uh, President Nixon's veto in 1973, and in my view, what we did, best intentions, two different houses with different views rushing towards the end, uh, what they did is, is, is they inadvertently expanded presidential powers in the sense that it is, it is believed that presidents can deploy our forces now for 60 to 90 days. Now, interestingly enough, that's not my read of the War Powers Act. But that's the what's important is that's what's perceived here uh, among the people's representatives and, by the way, has been argued at, at various times, in the courts even, uh, over time. So um, what the War Powers Reform Act does is it, it intends to close the big gaping hole uh, that was created by the War Powers Reform Act by we essentially do away with the sections of 60 and 90 days in the current War Powers Act And we say, look, clarifying on the front end, the president, he or she may deploy our forces into hostilities or imminent threat of hostilities in three circumstances. One, a declaration of war coming from the people's representatives. Two, an authorization to use force uh, from the people's representatives. Or three, a national emergency as uh, defined by an attack on the United States uh, or the imminent threat of attack, and here when we're talking about imminent threat, we're talking about an actual uh, operation that's uh, in the works to to attack the United States. We're not talking about the buildup to Iraq in 2002. We're talking about a 9/11 style attack that is in the in the throes. So uh, now, well, what about the teeth to this? What the War Powers Reform Act says is that if none of those circumstances are met, then the president must first come to the Congress for authorization, or he or she may not obligate or expend funds to deploy our forces in hostilities or imminent threat of hostilities. And there's a budget in the new draft, which we're circulating today. We have actually, if you've been online and looked at HR 1609, we've actually refined it. There are 25 co-sponsors right now, I'd be number 26. Uh, We have done some revisions to HR 1609 and look forward to dropping that uh, in the hopper here in the very near term. Uh, But uh, we also have a a budget point of order in this new revision that goes forward. So uh, I I think it's important that we do this and I'm reaching out today. I was very excited to work with Cato on this. You may be surprised to learn that, uh, that it had a very warm reception at Heritage. How often do you see Cato and Heritage uh, working together? But uh, at an important issue such as this, uh, I hope to also get the, uh, the support of Heritage and quite frankly, beyond. Why not Brookings too? Why don't we bring everyone together on an important issue so that we can have the fundamental reform as we look to uh, the 21st century? So uh, I'm passionate to talk more about this, but in the interest of time, uh, now that I've sketched out some of the historical background uh, and also the major provisions in the War Powers Reform Act, why don't I yield and uh, hear from my colleague? Thank you.
2: Does Congress care about the war powers? Does Congress, as a group, as an institution, do they care about the obligations they have under the Constitution? Does Congress, as a group, and congressmen and congresswomen, do they take pride in their institution, pride in being legislators, pride in being a member of the most powerful and important legislative body in the world? Do they have that kind of pride that James Madison thought would always go with being a legislator that went with him being a legislator in the first Congress? These are the real questions today, I think, that ultimately lie behind what we're talking about. I want to return to them at the end uh, and show their importance. But first, let me deal with some of the issues, some of which uh, Congressman Gibson has already dealt with, uh, and then go from there in return to thinking about these questions, because, again, I think these are the crucial ones, ultimately, that have to be answered by Congress itself. Let me begin by saying I write, and uh, I think many people on this panel start from a constitutional perspective that looks at the first article of the Constitution, the Section 8, that gives the power to declare war Uh, to the Congress of the United States, which means that the president cannot declare war without congressional approval. I do that because a man named Michael Ramsey, law professor at San Diego Law School, has looked extensively into this issue. What is the meaning of the word declare in 1789? In other words, this is an originalist perspective about the meaning of the Constitution. Professor Ramsey has shown that in 1789 to declare war, meant starting conflict. That was one of the meanings of it. So if you start a conflict, you're declaring war, as in the case of Libya uh, with the United States and President Obama today. He declared war on Libya in the meaning of 1789, the meaning that should uh, really guide us on constitutional issues. Now, I should mention just briefly, we tried to get someone from uh, another perspective on this to come in, and there was some difficulties with scheduling. So I thought what I would do is try my best to give you a brief indication of what I think they would say. We've hashed these things out over the years. And in fact, I, th- I think we both know uh, where the differences lie. And I think what a person uh, uh, who was on the other side would say about what I've just said, the fundamental issue, what does the Constitution say? is one of two things, they would say, as Professor John Yu says. If you look at the 1789 uh, document, the declaration of war phrase really only means that Congress has the power to change legal relations. That's what the meaning was at that time. It's not really a veto over the use of force. It's not really the power to send and approve of uh, forces going into action. It's just declaration. It tells people there's a war between these two powers, and uh, maybe it changes the rights people have, like resident aliens and so on. That's Professor Yu's interpretation. Uh, another group would say, I think, well, don't worry about the Constitution. The world has changed since 1789. Uh, this is Eric Posner and Adrian Vermeule, again, two law professors who seem to be um, <clears throat> the issues uh, at, essential to these uh, kinds of arguments. And they, uh, Vermulli and Posner, say, you know, the Congress cannot work fast. It, it moves slowly, but we've, the world has changed. We live in this world where things have to be done quickly and with resolution, and therefore, the President has to have the power to make war. That's an implication of what they say, and maybe President Obama would agree, because what he said about Libya was, A bunch of people were about to be killed by the uh, Qaddafi forces. I had to act. I couldn't wait for Congress. So those are the two kinds of arguments. But my argument on the other side is, well, do we really believe we have a Constitution here? Does it have meaning? And if it has meaning, shouldn't it apply unless we've amended it? In the Cold War, it is true. And this you can see in the Office of Legal Counsel opinions about this, who advised the president about these matters. The president did all sorts of different things. Uh, Congressman Gibson mentioned that about the Cold War. The, the United States could be attacked within seconds, and it was a real possibility. It was plausible that the Soviet Union might launch uh, a first uh, strike attack. The president had to have a unilateral power in a sense uh, to strike back, but it was a primarily a defensive one, a defensive power, which there is a defensive power for the president under the original Constitution to act to protect the country. When it's when quick action is needed on that account, a defensive account, uh, that sh- that spread throughout the Cold War period, and then you really got it that the Soviet Union, if they attacked or tried to undermine uh, American security through Nicaragua or Grenada and so on. again, you had the presidential power, and that was taking it even further. and of course, you had the Korean. Uh, a war exercise where the President Truman never had any kind of approval from anyone to, to make a war in which uh, 36,000 Americans died. But I'm focused here on after the Cold War, and I'm focused on that because I think after the Cold War ends, you have to come up with a different kind of sense of threat, right, if the President is going to continue to act unilaterally because the president has to be able to have that power to respond quickly to some sort of threat. The Soviets made sense for many people through most of that period. So what would replace it? It could be a new era. And basically, here's what I see has happened. If you look back at our history over the last 20 years or so, we fought three major wars in that period. And it turns out that a major war is one in which it's expected that lots of American soldiers may well die. There's going to be a lots of combat deaths. That's two Gulf Wars, two wars with Iraq basically, and a war with Afghanistan. Now, what do all of those share in common? They were all approved by Congress. They may not have been may not have been a declaration of war, but there was an authorization, and there was to some measure a debate. Now, were these perfect? Were they even perhaps what James Madison or Thomas Jefferson would have wanted? Maybe not. But there was an authorization. At the same time, during this 20-year period, we have fought a number of limited wars. And that's what my paper is about, and really what I want to talk about today. The limited wars are marked by a couple of things. One is that none of them has been fully approved by Congress. Kosovo was partially approved by the Senate under some circumstances, and so on. But none has got the full attention and the full Article I requirements that the Constitution places on us. And I think it's become even more so, that is, even more of a presidential war-making capability and starting capability uh, as time has gone on. Kosovo saw President Clinton being much more independent of Congress. Uh, In Bosnia, the earlier version of the uh, breakup of the, the old Yugoslavia, President Clinton was politically weakened in some ways, but he was also much more concerned about Congress and at least tried to persuade Congress uh, in the way that Dick Newstadt used to talk about of trying to persuade uh, another branch. But in Kosovo, basically, he did what he wanted to and things uh, there was actually very little in the way of resistance. In Libya, that trend continues. This limited trend in limited wars, it continues. The war we just saw. You, I think Libya is marked by even uh, more congressional passivity in the sense that if you think about the Libyan experience uh, from February and March and so on, Congress basically stayed out completely. Stayed out not just in terms of lawmaking for the first couple of months, but also stayed out in terms of much in the way of criticism. Congress is extraordinarily passive about Libya, there are some complaints here and there. Um, there is also the sense that was mentioned by uh, Representative Gibson which is that Libya is, is really the War Powers Act is um, not an issue in in Libya. It becomes an issue in a certain, only in the sense that when the barriers in there, the 60 and 90 day requirements where the president is supposed to have uh, made reports and to, and troops are supposed to be withdrawn if there's not an explicit approval. They served in this case more than anything to just sort of generate some congressional uh, concern, particularly the 90-day one, because at that point it was apparent to everyone that for all practical purposes the War Powers Resolution was dead. It had no constraining force. The president, not only did the president blow through the 90 days, he barely noticed that he had done it, right? He just kept going, and, acted, and then a few days later, uh, I think it was Senator Paul sent a query over: uh, "Are you going to, you know, do anything about the War Powers Resolution?" Sort of, could we ask him? Maybe, you know. Um, I think the other thing about Libya that is uh, striking is that ultimately the president uh, sought legitimacy from the war, for the war, and keep in mind and according to my point of view and a constitu- what I take to be a constitutional point of view, what makes the use of force lawful, what makes it legitimate, is that under the Constitution, Congress approves. and President wants and Congress approves, and then co- the President makes war. Uh, that did not happen here, but President um, uh, Obama sought legitimacy by his own account for the war from groups like the Arab League and the United States, United Nations Security Council. Arguably, it was these institutions, external institutions to the, to the United States, that had a veto over American war-making. Uh, through the course of the war, eventually, when there was some uh, dissent, well, two to three months in, there was a sense the president himself and the president's lawyers said that the war in Libya was legitimated by the the uh, United UN Security Council resolution uh, permitting the use of force. Now that resolution itself reflected an <coughs> earlier open-ended commitment from the United States and the interpretation of that from high-level members of the the uh, administration, from a U- UN-sponsored uh, resolution to protect civilians from their government, the so-called responsibility to protect doctrine. So in a sense, what you have here on one level is a replacement of one kind of legitimation through Congress in the United States with another, which is through the UN Security Council and also powerful regional actors. Now you can see why they wanted this, because they were afraid, to, again, to, to provide an argument on the other side. They were concerned that the US use of force would be seen, particularly in the Muslim world, as being uh, oppressive, or simply in the self-interest of the United States. So they were seeking out legitimacy from these institutions and saying, no, this is not just the United States pursuing its interest, it's some more general good. However, um, there's a couple of things about this. I think our first impression about this, many people at least that I know, the first impression is to say this isn't a big issue, that all that was happening was President Obama ultimately decided that he wanted to uh be involved in the Libyan conflict, and this uh, the UN and so on was sort of eyewash. It was sort of a justification for that, right? But he decided first, and then he got the justification later. However, it's been President Obama is not the first American president to claim the legitimacy from a, the UN Security Council. And as time goes on, the danger really exists, in my view that this kind of practice of war making and legitimating the war is going to become more than just, even if it is now just sort of a rationalization for what the American president wants to do, it's going to matter in its own. And we will find at some point in some future conflict that the United States has to seek legitimacy from use, for the use of force from international institutions, that our practices, our habits, will become rules for the future and, in fact, that our American president might find them self-constrained not by the uh, Congress, but by uh, an international institution. Um, and the problem with that is, of course, is that's not Republican, with a small r. That is, the United States is a form of government that's set up to be a republic. That's what, The center of that is the legislature. Taxpayers pay taxes, they consent, Uh, and the government uh, actually is responsible to them. This is a war uh, that on this theory of external or international legitimacy for the war really is not, you have a, a group of people who are not accountable to American taxpayers, American citizens, not accountable to them deciding whether or not the American president should go to war. So just even if you want to put aside that that's just a strange theory given the Constitution and the original interpretation, the original meaning of the Constitution. Even if we just said, we're a republic, that's a problem, I think. Now, I should say one other thing about limited wars, which is the executive actually here is not unbound, I don't think. That is, I don't think the executive—if you look at these limited wars going back to 1991 or so, beginning in Somalia, really. You don't. What you don't find is the president can do anything he wants to. The president is constrained in one important way. If you look at it, these limited wars cannot involve beforehand a strong expectation that there's going to be American combat deaths. Think about it. Even in the Yugoslavian crisis, where there was one sort of training death, President Clinton said at the end of it, and similar things to what President Obama says, which is nobody got killed. And that's, and the war is over now. That, uh, talking about Kosovo, President uh, Obama emphasized that from the front end. Now, I'm not, I'm not arguing here that, you know, wouldn't it it'd be better if we had wars where we expected um, uh, the president decides to have wars and then American troops get killed. But I'm saying that in a sense, the president power, president's power seems to be limited by politics, the politics of body bags. And they're constrained in responding to these uh, sort of security wars, that is, wars to advance American interests allegedly. They're restrained by the fact that nobody can get killed. Perhaps that's a good thing, but this also have to face the fact that these wars do involve spending. The, it tends to be the front end of a wedge. How much money are we gonna end up spending in Libya? All right? And that again is a, a central kind of concern for Congress, I think. So the, the, the constraint we have is arguably a good one, but it's not one that really goes to the whole issue and certainly doesn't go to the constitutional issues uh, of the country we live in and live in the constitution we live under. And so where do we go from here I think we need to acknowledge that the War Powers Act is dead. We, it's not going to be resuscitated. This was such an extreme situation in that regard that uh, it, it's, not, it, it's not in and of itself. It just can't continue the way it is, and that Congressman Gibson is on good ground to, to have significant reform, I think. What did it end? It's worth knowing what, why the War Powers Act turned out to be non-functional. I think uh, one was the courts treated, uh, treated this whole question as a, as a political question to be fought out. By, in other words, not enforcing Article I constraints. The president more and more over time was willing to violate uh, the uh, Constitution. And why? Because the costs were low. Think of anyone, President uh, Clinton was reelected. All right. President Clinton, just to choose He's not the only one, but President Clinton was reelected, and he left office with enormous approval ratings. There's a salience problem on public opinion here. Uh, and then one thing that we have to face up is that maybe Congress likes it this way, right? Uh, I was at a meeting a couple of weeks ago with, uh, in which John Yu was on the uh, panel and there was this hashing out of these issues. And at the end of it, you said, as if playing his trump card, you know, I think it's really the way we have it now, everyone's complaining about uh, Congress not getting involved, but I think Congress likes it this way. I think they want it exactly like this, where they, can, they don't have to take responsibility for the war itself, and yet they can complain about it or whatever or just avoid it if they want to. It's a perfect situation for them, according to uh, Professor Yu. Uh, and that may be part of the problem why the War Powers Act ultimately Congress was unwilling to enforce it. I fully uh, endorse. I think uh, uh, Congressman Gibson's on the right path here. Remember, any whatever your position is about executive power and the war powers, the executive powers people like Professor Yu say, well, you know, Congress does have the power to control funding. So nobody, nobody argues. The Congress doesn't have the right to control funding. And to get at the issue that way, if Congress is willing to stand up for itself and for the country, I think that's the way to go. In the paper, I discuss how criticism from Congress can have an effect on the executive. And it does have There's some evidence from political science that it has effects. The problem here is this is the wrong way to go in some respects, constitutionally. That is to say, uh, the Congress is not, I think uh, Senator Paul has this right, Congress is, can be involved in the war-making, but generally speaking, they're not going to be involved constitutionally micromanaging. They're supposed to decide at the front end. But it is true that, apart from everything else, they do have had some effect on presidents in this regard, that is, by criticism, by holding hearings, by affecting public opinion. The other thing I would say is Congress should be confident about itself and public opinion, which you don't really see at all in these situations. The most surprising thing I found in studying this 20-year period since the end of the Cold War is that time and time again the pollsters go out there and say, do you want in uh, Kosovo, in Bosnia, in Haiti, wherever... Do you want the president just to use force for American interest, or whatever the terms were, or do you want Congress to approve of it? And the, the returns are remarkable here. It was never less than 60%, and sometimes as high as 75 or 80% of the public saying, we want Congress to be involved. The public on this issue, in this period at least, is much more uh, supportive of what I would call the constitutional uh, path toward war then, and I think Congress should know that and should be confident about their position in demanding more from the president. And a couple of final points, I would say this whole business of international legitimacy needs to be talked about and put on the agenda uh, and denied, and I think members of Congress will have an easy time doing that. Um, and I also think it would be good for it to have a congressional resolution that simply denies the responsibility to protect. The Responsibility to Protect is kind of a nebulous, non-law-like kind of, well, maybe we agreed to it, maybe we didn't, that came out of a UN uh, uh, organization, a meeting over a year or so. It's not clear that we, it's certainly not a treaty of the United States, but it would be valuable if Congress said directly, uh, we do not endorse this. It is not a treaty of the United States. And at least in that regard, you will take away some of the appearance of legality for uh, these kinds of – otherwise, you do run the real risk that you're going to be continually involved. The president has a reason to exercise power for these limited wars. And you can say, well, Samples, what's wrong? You've also said, what's wrong with that? I mean, you said that the president's not going to put any American soldiers at risk for political reasons. And what's wrong with it is, beyond the spending and getting America involved in, in these kinds of uh, foreign entanglements is that that we have a process here, under a constitution, and the process is designed to have more than one person making this momentous decision. And it, under the, the world the constitution we live in, it's designed to bring more than one person at bear. I have to say, in looking at these last 20 years, I'm not confident that Congress would have stopped or would have refused to support any of the limited wars that actually took place. So it's not just content here that, that matters. Process matters, and as does the Constitution. But to finish, coming back to those original questions, again and again when I study qu- Congress on these issues, this, these are the questions. Congress can do it, but it's got to step up. Congress is on solid ground in, in its exercise of the war powers, in taking joint responsibility that was mentioned by Congressman Gibson. But they've got to do it. And to some extent, I think it comes down to this question of, you're a legislator. You're a member of Congress. It's a great body. Do you take pride in that? You're supposed to fight your part of this battle. You're supposed to constrain the president. Can you do that? It's uh, So fun. I'd like to thank uh, Congressman Gibson and his staff for setting all, up all of this. It's really great to know that there is a member out there that cares about these process issues. Uh, I couldn't help but, uh, we seem to know a lot of the same people, about 20 years ago I was working with Dick Neustadt on a project about covert action at that time and I, the thing <laughs> came to my mind was this is about covert action. Dick saying uh, he, he was a great guy and a great political scientist. He said, uh, Let's see if we can find ways to constrain these guys. And that's the basic idea. And it also, you know, Dick Neustadt was a liberal Democrat. There may be cross partisan uh, possibilities here. And it's great to hear Congressman Gibson mention Brookings, which I think is a possibility. <clears throat> Thank you.